Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for being with us on the non-woke Common Sense ADH. We bring you the latest here. I'll have a word, a word, I'm going to say a word, a word about tonight's so-called budget. And we'll go local, national and international. The floods, it goes on and on. The good news is from tomorrow through to Saturday, we're told adverse weather conditions in New South Wales will most probably start to abate and there should be some reprieve into the weekend. Lismore residents have breathed a sigh of relief. The weather system has moved south. The clouds cleared yesterday at Lismore and the residents came alive yesterday afternoon. Wonderful news. But at Moree, 4,000 people are still under evacuation warnings. Much of the town's north is cut off by floodwaters and food is becoming increasingly scarce. Tremendous interest in the interview I did last night about the flooding of the Murray, the crisis in the Murray-Darling system and the fate of the beautiful Echuca where the Murray River is peaking. Now, residents have got sandbags everywhere, fighting more water from torrential rain and a rapidly increasing river. Now, the Victorian SES believe the Murray peaked yesterday, though a fresh warning was issued today that the Murray might reach its highest level at just below, cop this, 95 metres today. That would be major flooding. Locals who live on the riverside of the man-made Echuca levee protecting the town from a wall of muddy water, they are now completely surrounded by water. And the Murray overflow could hit Swan Hill by the weekend and then surging onto Mildura in November. Last night's interview on the Echuca crisis can be seen in its entirety on the ADH app, where you'll see all of last night's program or go to Facebook or YouTube. Overseas, the bastardry in Myanmar continues while the world just watches on a military airstrike on a civilian music concert in Myanmar's north saw one of the worst mass killings since the ousting of Aung San Suu Kyi's government in February. As many as 60 people have been killed. A brutal assassination, but the world offers only words. Vanuatu has elected its first woman to parliament in 14 years following a snap election on Monday. Gloria King's had a colourful career. She played international football for Vanuatu and co-runs a business selling kava. Not my favourite drink. Please don't be upset, all you Fijians and Vanuatuans and Samoans. And the Italian Prime Minister, I'll have a word about her later, but she said she'll be addressed as Il Presidente del Consiglio, the masculine form of her title. Her cabinet has fewer female ministers than that of her predecessor. She didn't appoint a minister for education, wouldn't we love this? But a Minister for Education and Merit. She's going to be a force to be reckoned with. Pauline Hanson last night rightly said that Lydia Thorpe shouldn't be allowed to refer herself to a Parliamentary Privileges Committee, which investigates parliamentarians in camera. That is, no public access. Pauline Hanson is right. The public needs to hear from the Greens leader, Adam Bant, and Senator Thorpe on the floor of the Parliament. And Peter Dutton and Anthony Albanese should make sure that is so. We learnt overnight of the passing of one of the great men of Australian media, Ken Cowley, who helped Rupert Murdoch pioneer the Australian newspaper way back in 1964. He was head of the Australian operations of News Limited for 17 years, a thorough gentleman. 
He loved the bush, Ken Cowley. He was chairman of the Australian Stockman's Hall of Fame and the Outback Heritage Centre in Longreach. He transformed the business of the bush outfitter, R.M. Williams. He spent his childhood in a tent in Western Sydney and reached the top of the corporate and political world. Ken Cowley has passed away at the age of 87. And if you want to buy a pub that boasts a rich history of live music with an approved DA for a shopping centre, the Mansfield Tavern in Brisbane's southern suburbs is on the market for the first time in 25 years. It's a massive site, more than two hectares. It has a capacity for more than 1,000 people. It's hosted every internationally acclaimed music act that you could mention. You can get it, they reckon, for about 30 million. Well, you'll get more than that on this program tonight. We go to America with Peggy Grandy. I'll talk about the latest crisis in education. The new British Prime Minister, Jacinta Price. I'm giving her 100 out of 10 netball yet to score. What they won't tell you in tonight's budget, I'll tell you. And I'll go to Italy to see what the polls are saying about Europe and the world. It's all here on the non-woke Common Sense ADH. I'm Alan Jones. As I'm speaking to you, the Treasurer, Dr Jim Chalmers, is finishing his first budget. Don't turn me off. There's no need to listen to Dr Chalmers. I'll tell you what he won't tell you. Firstly, can he stop talking about a trillion dollars of debt? Whatever the debt, when Mr Albanese and Dr Chalmers were in opposition and Morrison and Frydenberg were throwing money around, allegedly to save us all from death from coronavirus, Jim Chalmers, Shadow Treasurer, was nodding his head in approval. So whatever debt there is, Jim Chalmers, and I'll come back to that in a moment, whatever debt there is, it's your debt. He waived ridiculous spending through the parliament. Now you've heard me before about the governor of the Reserve Bank, Lowe, giving away money and virtually saying there'll be no increase in interest rates until 2024, and hundreds of thousands of Australians went into debt over their, over their heads and inflation took off. Well, only yesterday, the former governor, or the Bank of England governor, Mervyn King, in the job for 10 years, rightly criticised the way central banks handled COVID. We had earlier criticism, or criticism earlier this week, about the COVID response, and I talked about that. Well, Mervyn King called on governments to front up and explain the consequences of soaring inflation and the reduction of living standards, so that future generations, poor coots, can deal with increased national debt, your children, your grandchildren. Mervyn King said that mortgage rates were, quote, clearly going to go up, but then said all central banks, quote, made the mistake, unquote, during the lockdown period of, quote, thinking that they should print a lot of money to support the economy, unquote. Now, as you know, I criticised this extravagant waste, but Jim Chalmers waved it through. The former Bank of England Governor Mervyn King said, quote, all central banks in the West, unquote, had failed in their duty to control inflation. Listen to this, quote, during COVID, when the economy was actually contracting because of lockdown, central banks decided it was a good time to print a lot of money. That was a mistake that led to inflation. We had too much money chasing too few goods. The result was inflation. That was predictable. It was predicted. It happened. That was the wrong policy by all central banks, unquote. Well, I'm sorry to say I made those points over and over again and was criticised for making them. But Dr Chalmers, and I should point out, as I have before, the doctorate is not in economics. 
It's from the ANU, a thesis titled Brawler Statesman, Paul Keating and Prime Ministerial Leadership in Australia, unquote. What Dr. Chalmers should be talking about is what he talked about when he was working for the man who never produced a surplus, Wayne Swan. Labor then talked about net debt. Our net debt is eye-watering, but it's not a trillion dollars. It went from $491 billion in 2019-20 to $632 billion in the financial year just completed at June 30. $632 billion. Now remember, when Labor last came to office in 2007, the Howard Costello government had left $40 billion in the till. No debt. By the time Labor finished, there was $210 billion of debt. No coronavirus. $210 billion of debt. I repeat, Labor can't keep throwing bombs at the opposition and blaming them for this eye-watering figure because Labor in opposition nodded its agreement when all this cash was being splashed around because of coronavirus. Now, net debt is the sum of interest-bearing liabilities, borrowings, if you like, the money we borrow to pay for all this stuff, and it incurs interest. Net debt is that total less the financial assets that the government has on our behalf, cash, deposits, investments and loans, etc. So Treasurer Chalmers talk about net debt, not gross debt, and talking about splashing money around. Can anyone seriously agree that families earning up to $530,000 should get a 90% childcare subsidy for their first child? That was announced tonight. Taxpayers paying families for 26 weeks of paid parental leave. 600 million a year. That'd be fine. But we're in debt up to our eyeballs. 2.5 billion for aged care won't even touch the sides of the aged care problem. Cop this, 54.3 million in electric car discounts. Look out, this is what is going to happen here. You can get an interest-free loan in Victoria if you want to put solar panels on your roof, taxpayers' money. You can get $1,000 if you install solar hot water, taxpayers' money. You can get $3,000 for a solar battery, taxpayers' money. Buy an electric vehicle in Victoria, upfront grant of $3,000, taxpayers' money. Same in New South Wales. You watch it, won't stop there. Labor will go down the Norway route. Tax the normal vehicle by about $23,000. But if you drive an electric vehicle, there'll be no road tolls, no taxes, free parking, the use of bus lanes. Here we go again. Taxpayers' money will subsidise anything green, and it has tonight. But we're swimming in debt. Dr Chalmers boasted tonight that there'll be a $40 billion or $40 billion in new borrowings to cover election promises. But then boasted it was affordable because of an improvement in the budget bottom line. The deficit for this year will come in. This is pretty simple to understand. Stay with me. The deficit for this year will come in at about 40 billion compared with 78 billion forecast by Josh Frydenberg in March. Now, there's always an however. This government and plenty in the opposition hate fossil fuels. The budget deficit's been slashed because of record company tax collections of around 126 billion, driven by our highest ever resources and energy exports of 421 billion, led by the condemned to death fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas. In this financial year, that ends next June, the golden eggs keep being laid. 
like coal and oil and gas won't go on forever because they're being demonised. Exports this financial year, $450 billion. The demonised coal export revenues, $120 billion. I mean, forget the budget tonight. Our economy is reaching a tipping point with this campaign against fossil fuels. Albanese, Bowen and co want to kill off this economic lifeline. What's worse, they ignore the consequences. Coal is the biggest single revenue earner in New South Wales. Perrottet and Keene country, $22.6 billion in exports, $4 billion in royalties. Now listen, make no mistake, fossil fuel revenue underpins this budget tonight and several state budgets. Take the revenue away and forget the fancy language. This is what they aim to do. You then have what I have called for years, a national economic suicide note. I say it all the time here, the world is becoming a more uncertain place. That will continue as the developed world endures economic turbulence. The big losers will be those responsible for very little of the mess, the taxpayers. The combination of runaway inflation, high interest rates, rising cost of living, record household debt, supply shortages, the energy crisis, surely a political backlash looms. The voting public have had enough. Already there's a whole generation of young people who feel they've been unfairly excluded from home ownership. And this sort of resentment is what causes disillusionment with the political system. Europe's had its fair share of political events in recent years. The dominant one is, without any doubt, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, which prompts the question, how does the West allow Putin's barbaric war to continue? But what are the politics in all of this? Early this year, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, just held on to the presidency, seeing off the increasingly popular Marine Le Pen to secure a second term. Sweden now has a centre-right government, which has promised to crack down on crime and curtail immigration. The bloke who succeeded Angela Merkel in Germany seems completely out of his depth. And only on Sunday, Giorgia Maloney was sworn in as Italy's first female prime minister. And now in Britain, the former chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is about to be coronated as prime minister without a single vote being cast. No vote from MPs in the parliamentary party and no vote from the party membership. He's 42, the youngest UK prime minister in modern political history, but he was only elected in 2015. He holds William Hague's former seat of Richmond in North Yorkshire. He's Britain's third leader in seven weeks and the first Hindu non-white prime minister in the country's history. A rich banker and a teetotaler, he and his wife have a combined fortune of 730 million pounds. That's 1.3 billion Aussie dollars, double the fortune of King Charles. More of that later. But what a world we are living in. Well, Michela Marizzo is the founder and CEO of Techni Italia and UK, which is an opinion polling market and data research company. What are the polls saying about all of this? And Michaela joins me from Rome. Michaela, thank you so much for your time. Uh, let's start, if we might, in thank the UK, you. as I know you conduct plenty of polling there. What do the polls tell you about the Conservative Party and their hold on government? Well, first of all, thank you, Alan, for inviting me. It's a great, great pleasure. 
uh, for me. Um, well, with regards to polling and the Conservative Party, um, I can tell you what the last data, we, uh, the last poll we've done last week, Friday, um, told us before the new Prime Minister, of course, um, was uh, nominated. And what we've seen is that the crisis of confidence in the government has strong repercussions for political party support and voting intention. Last week, Labour had a 31-point lead over the Conservatives, and Keir Starmer's party uh, raised by four points to 52% of total vote share, while the Conservatives fell still further to just 22%. Mm. So you, you've said, McKellar, very... you've, sorry to interrupt you, McKellar, but yeah. you said people feel worse off and they fear it's going to get worse. Our experience of polling exactly. across Europe and beyond shows that once that happens, it's difficult, very difficult, you said, to win people back. Are voters deserting major parties? Well, I can tell you from my experience, and in many countries, uh, uh, we normally pull and analyze the scenarios that people uh, don't uh, desert a major party, but they desert elections. Yes. So, yes. a very high percentage of electors would uh, go to the abstention area in right. this case. Very interesting. Very interesting. Abstention. Don't vote at all. Mind you, it's compulsory in Australia, but... but yes, but, they but, don't vote at all. No, no. And of course, in Australia, while we say voting is compulsory, you've only got to be t turn up and get your name off the roll. You don't actually have to vote. Now, the Prime Minister-designate Rishi Sunak, can he win back public confidence despite his plans to increase taxes. Now, your company has conducted that polling which you talked about. I'll just put it up on the screen, which is very interesting. It's dramatic stuff. 70%, have a look at this slide, 70% of those polled have no confidence in the UK government. What does that mean, McKellar? Well, um, first of all, this uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, the new Prime Minister and the leader of the Conservatives, will have to regain trust and credibility, not only from voters, but also from the markets. And it's not, uh, it will not be easy. It's like something uh, climbing a mountain. Um, because this uh, regain credibility within the markets and the public opinion, it's a very hard job at the moment. Uh, what can, can I tell you that is that um, uh, he's considered a, a moderate, uh, more moderate than Liz Truss was, of course. And um, of course, if um, Jeremy Hunt will remain as Chancellor, for example, I think that they could have the opportunity to work on the credibility and on the trust of public opinion and yeah. markets. But of course, everything will depend yeah. on their economic yeah. measures and yes. policies they yes. will do. I mean, those polls, I mean, the Conservatives hold 357 seats. Those polls suggest they'd be reduced to fewer than 100 seats. I mean, you need 326 seats to govern in Britain, perhaps 327 if you provide the Speaker. So Labor would have to win another 130 seats. Now, that seems beyond the realm of possibility. But if that poll that McKellar is talking about suggests 70% of respondents say they have no confidence in the government, unless Sunak can turn things around, you're looking at a wipeout. Do you think this drift from major political parties is a worldwide trend? 
Oh, yes, Alan. It's um, uh, it's quite a worldwide trend, but um, this year in particular, because um, in Europe, for example, in the UK too, but in many areas of the world, we are coming from a very big emergency like the COVID pandemic, and then another big emergency, the war in Ukraine, and then the economic crisis, the cost of living rising so high, the energy prices. So people, um, of course, are very scared and worried about their future. And normally, uh, when people are so worried about what will happen um, with the, the, the money they have in their pockets, with their working opportunities and so on, of course, they, they, they tend to, to, to lose trust in, um, yes, yes. Uh, in in the in the general institution, not only in the major political parties. That's why I told you that normally a very high percentage can go to the abstention area. Right. Well, now you know the new prime minister, Giorgio Maloney, uh, Italy's first female prime minister. Um, does this mean the pendulum is shifting away from left-wing parties? I mean, she wants more police, less crime, cost of living relief, control over Ill illegal immigration, lower taxes, reassertion of traditional Italian identity, more independence from the dictates of the European Union. Sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? Yes, um, it is. Um, I think that um, uh, Italy is going uh, to change his approach, but uh, not um, um, in a very uh, strong and um, way. But I'm sure that above all at the European and level and in the international arena, um, the, the Atlantism and Europeanism will remain, will stay, but but Italy will probably make itself heard more. Mm. Um, above all, on internal competitions. Mm. For example, talking about the gas uh, prices emergency, Italy has been asking for a long time for a common policy to be used, putting a gas price cap and a sort of recovery fund to help countries in difficulty to lower the cost. And Italy doesn't want to compete within European countries because um, it's it's important that uh, Europe is unified not only with the uh, currency, but also with uh, the policies. We, That's we, much more important. Yeah, we, we've got a big Italian community who'll be watching you here tonight, and they're very productive, they're, they're wonderful people. Um, I just wanted to ask you about debt. I mean, your economy, Italian economy, is the third largest in the Eurozone. Its debt is 150% of GDP. Does Italy worry about that? But before you answer that question, just tell us what you know this lady. What's she like? How would you describe her? Uh, well, um, uh, Giorgia Meloni is um, um, a, a, a long experienced politician, of course, and uh, she has very strong Catholic family's values. She's uh, a person that um, wants always to to study and to go in deep on every topic. And so people at the moment trust um, her and the new government very much. Mm. But I can tell you from my experience that the honeymoon of the government uh, with the public opinion uh, lasts no longer uh, two years, a couple of years or something like that, but months. 
And so um, this applies to the Italy, but also to the UK. And um, this is the signal of problems and concern in public opinion of such a level that uh, the they really want uh, immediate results. They really want at the moment uh, to know that somebody cares about, about them. And I think at the, at the moment, Giorgia Meloni is that person. Yes, absolutely. Well, just before you go, I mean, Italy is renowned, Michele, for having a high turnover of governments. Um, Meloni will lead the country's 68th government since the end of World War II, averaging a new cabinet every 13 months. Your polling suggests that over 56% believe she'll last the whole five years. Is that how you see it? Yes, at the moment, uh, well, it's quite normal. The the, the official um, um, nomination of of the government um, took place a couple of days ago on Saturday. So it's quite normal that uh, there is um, uh, confidence from the public opinion at the beginning, and uh, and the the, the percentage of 50.4 percent is a quite high percentage because just to 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 give you an example, um, the drug government um, was 45% in terms of confidence the moment he was about to resign. So she starts five percentage points above the end of the Draghi mm. government. And that's a very good signal mm, indeed. Absolutely. Look, there's plenty to ponder. I just want to say to you, Michaela, it is important for our viewers who are often said to be down under and a long way away from the world to know these things as the world is more interconnected than ever before. Thank you for your insights. The Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan, I think, said long before the introduction of the internet, and he focused on the idea of an interconnected culture and coined the phrase global village. Exactly. The world is indeed a global village. And Australians down under, I can tell you, McKellar, feel very connected to that. So thank you for your insights. They're very instructive, they're very helpful, and they're very appreciated. Grateful for your time, Michaela. Thank you so much. Not at all. That's Michaela Marizzo, so the founder and CEO of Tecni Italia and UK, speaking to us from Rome. I know I made reference to this in that previous interview with Michaela, but for many reasons, this is an extraordinary story. Rishi, Rishi Sunak, at 42 years of age, has been a member of the British Parliament for only seven years, is now the Prime Minister-designate. Now, he's not the Prime Minister yet. Liz Truss will today hold her final question time as Prime Minister. She'll then go to Buckingham Palace to offer her resignation to the King. Rishi Sunak will be summonsed and he'll be sworn in as the new Prime Minister. He was born in Southampton to parents of Punjabi Indian descent who migrated from East Africa in the 1960s. He'll become the UK's first Prime Minister of colour and the first Hindu Prime Minister both milestones in Britain's evolution as a multicultural and multi-faith society. Sunak is a practicing Hindu, and he was named the UK's next leader on Diwali, the festival celebrated by millions of Hindus around the world. Almost ironically, it celebrates new beginnings and the triumph of good over evil. Let's hope so. Rishi Sunak, to be fair, is splendidly credentialed academically, which may not mean politically, witness the experience with Turnbull. A degree from Oxford University, an MBA from Stanford University, and he was a Fulbright scholar. His wife is the daughter of an Indian billionaire businessman. Rishi Sunak and his wife are the 222nd richest people in Britain, with a combined fortune of 730 million pounds. 
As I said, elected to the Commons in 2015, which I find amazing, succeeding a former leader, William Hague, in the Richmond electorate way up in the north of England, North Yorkshire. However, he's been at the centre of the current crisis in the Conservative Party. As I said, a bit of the Malcolm Turnbull touch here, backstabbing. He had replaced Sergeant Javid as Chancellor and then resigned, virtually stabbing Boris Johnson in the back and the rest we know, chaos. He's now been elected unopposed. And as I said earlier, without a vote, single vote being cast by anybody, not in the parliament and not in the party. He and Boris Johnson hadn't spoken since Sunak's resignation as chancellor, but they met on Saturday night for two and a half hours and failed to reach any agreement. My information is that Boris Johnson did have the 100 parliamentary members required to go into a runoff, but as I said last night, he also faced a hearing before the Parliamentary Privileges Committee, and it was reported that members of Number 10 Downing Street would have given evidence against him in relation to Mr Johnson's birthday party in the middle of COVID, and that would have made his resumed Prime Ministership untenable. It'll be interesting to see how Rishi Sunak holds up, because he also was part of the Partygate scandal, but was fined and given a fixed penalty notice from the police. He was also investigated in 2020 concerning the timing of the declaration of his family's $3 billion shareholding in the family company. He was cleared of any ministerial impropriety. At the same time, it was revealed that his wife had legally avoided paying about $35 million in British tax by paying an annual fee of $50,000 to maintain a non-domiciled status in the country. That controversy led Mrs Sunak to issue a statement saying she would pay UK taxes on her global income. Rishi Sunak fought Liz Truss on the tax issue, but as Chancellor, he raised corporation taxes from 19 to 25%. But we come back to the statements I alluded to earlier by the former governor of the Bank of England and government responses to coronavirus. Many of Rishi Sunak's critics argue that the country's economic woes stem from him splashing around money during the pandemic. That unaccounted billions was spent on unnecessary personal protection equipment. And then of course, on top of all that, his plans for a Greens tax. Sounds like Australia. Nonetheless, this is an extraordinary development. A man heads the sixth largest economy in the world. He's only 42. He's been in parliament only seven years. And his resignation from cabinet triggered the exodus of about 60 members of the Johnson ministry and Boris Johnson was gone. It could easily be argued that it was he who forced Boris Johnson out and the consequent mess in the Conservative Party. Now he faces an electorate confronting rising inflation, increased costs of borrowing and an energy crisis. In Britain, so it is in Australia. How does Rishi Sunak, with all his academic credentials, address the financial crisis of debt? then there's net zero. Boris Johnson, having written powerfully and persuasively against the net zero nonsense, submitted to the influence of his wife and went green all over. Will Rishi Sunak break from that policy? Because implementing it is unaffordable. That's why Britain, like Australia, faces an energy crisis. As Greg Sheridan splendidly wrote today, will Rishi be able to tell everyone that daddy can't afford the Christmas presents after all. Reality has a way of asserting itself.
Well, as always, we go to Pinky Grandy in America, where there are some quite extraordinary political developments. But firstly, Carrie-Anne Lake is the most impressive American politician, former television news anchor. She's the Republican nominee, I'm laughing thinking of this, for the 2022 governorship of Arizona. Now, we've heard for almost two years concerns that Donald Trump should be virtually stoned in the public place because of what he said about the last presidential election. Well, Kari Lake campaigning in Arizona last week nailed it. Let's have a look at this. I'm actually shocked you asked that question. <laughs> well, actually, yes, I don't think it's a tough one once in a while. <laughs> you know, I, I did a little, actually, Anthony. Anthony, how old are you? 20. Are you a journalist? No. Well, you did better research than half these people. Um, let's talk about election deniers. Here's 150 examples of Democrats denying election results. Oh, wow, look at this. This is from, this is from uh, Joe Biden's press secretary. Reminder, Brian Kemp stole the gubernatorial election from Georgians and Stacey Abrams. Democrats saying that. Is that an election denier? Oh, look at this. Just heard Republican Ryan Costello said it would be difficult for Stacey Abrams to win because she lost her state bid, but yet she's still claiming she never lost. This is outright Hillary Clinton. Trump is an illegitimate president. Is she an election denier? This one says, was the 2016 election legitimate? It now definitely is a question worth asking. That's the Los Angeles Times. So it's okay for Democrats to question elections, but it's not okay for Republicans. It's a crock of BS. Every one of you knows it. We have our freedom of speech, and we're not going to relinquish it to a bunch of fake news propagandists. <laughs> Peggy, what do you make of that? She's one hell of a candidate. Well, thank you, Alan, for having me on. And isn't that a beautiful tutorial on exactly how Republicans should push back against the media? She is smart. She's beautiful. She's articulate. And she's on the right side of the facts. And all she's doing is pointing out the truth. She's going to win in Arizona. And it's really exciting to watch because she's going to win in a big way. She's pointing out the fact that Republicans, Democrats, and independents all want election security. They want to understand that their elections are free and fair, safe and secure. She's showing that the Democrats wanted that previously, and that's what the Republicans are asking for now. So I think she's going to fare very well in the upcoming election. She's made the promotion of election lies central to her candidacy. Is she going to win Arizona? I know she said that she will. How's she managing? Well, it's interesting because the outgoing governor, Doug Ducey, he's two-termed, um, and so he's term-limited out in Arizona, and he just handed her a huge gift. He signed a massive school choice education bill that gives all kinds of school choice freedom to parents and students all over Arizona, and so that has been such a pivotal issue right now for parents across political aisles that I think it's put a lot of wind in her sails, and I think she's going to do really well, um, surprisingly so, come November. Peggy, just on these mid term elections, which are not far away, November 8th, the New York City is regarded as a democratic jewel. There have been soaring crime rates, a 34% jump in robbery. Are Republicans in striking distance of a rare victory in blue ribbon Democrat territory? 
It seems hard to believe, but we think that they are. And especially crime is one of the number one issues. And you look at even Republican gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin. He was at a campaign rally and was attacked on stage by somebody. And so crime is something that everybody's paying attention to across the political aisles. And Democrats don't like their cities being overrun by crime, um, homeless, inflation, all these things that are harming New Yorkers. And so we may actually see a Republican governor elected there as well. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? So Lee Zeldin is the challenger, putting crime at the center of the campaign. The polls, as I see them, show a dramatic tightening with the 42-year-old Mr. Zeldin ahead of the incumbent governor, Kathy Hochul, for the first time. Is that how you see it? Because New York's only had one Republican governor since 1975, and more than 60% of New York voters voted for Biden in 2020. Well, it'll be interesting to watch, but I think even especially the business owners, the parents, they're looking at schools, they're looking at crime, they're looking at the tax rates there in the state of New York. And New Yorkers are proud long-term of their state, but they're being forced out of this state. And I don't think that this former Lieutenant Governor, now Governor, she has continued the bad Cuomo policies and she's struggling under the weight of the, mm. the consequences mm. of those bad policies. So and, and, we may see um, New York turn red as well. Yeah, and Zeldin has said he'll not with abortion rights, and many Democrats have openly said they will be voting for him as a result. Right, because abortion consistently polls around 7th to 10th as far as important issues to voters right now. And the Democrats keep doubling down on that, trying to make that the issue of the season. But when you've got gas prices, energy prices, inflation, crime, and open border, wokeness in the schools, there's a lot of things that New Yorkers and Americans care about. They're not going to be voting primarily on abortion. Mm. And the polling is continuing to show that less and less. So it's a losing policy for the Democrats and a winning policy for the Republicans to focus on crime. Wonderful. Now, Peggy, in Oregon, which is another Democratic stronghold, is the Republican challenger Christine Drazan ahead of the Democrat in the governor's race? As crazy and preposterous as it sounds, that's actually happening. Now, part of that is because there's a longtime Democrat, former Democrat, who is now an independent, who stood back and said, I cannot stand any longer to see Democrats ruin the state of Oregon. And so she has declared as a, a candidate for governor as an independent. And so there's a lot of thinking that the Democrat and independent vote will be split by Democrat voters. And so it is giving an advantage to the Republican. But you have to look at common sense voters like Phil Knight, who's the founder of Nike. They have been in Oregon since its founding. He has poured over a million dollars into the Republican um, Drazen's campaign. And he's not exactly a staunch conservative, but he realizes that common sense policies that will help mm. Oregon Oregonians mm. and help businesses there mm. makes sense. And so he's even supporting the Republican go governor candidate there. Amazing. And anything could happen on November 8th, but the tide is turning, I think. Look, back to yeah. Biden. I noticed Biden saying he could drop dead tomorrow, so voters have the right to question whether he's fit to seek a second term in 2024. Perish that thought. But have a look at this, viewers. This is Biden congratulating Kamala Harris on her birthday, and he refers to her as the president. Watch this. And happy birthday, great president. Uh, we know uh, your mom's always with you. Yes. Oh, Peggy, Peggy, sorry. I got to play that again. Just play that again. This is unbelievable. 
And happy birthday, a great president. Uh, we know uh, your mom's always with you. Peggy, how on earth could that bloke contemplate running again? Except I suppose the Democrats, as we've said, don't have another candidate. Well, it'd be funny maybe if this was the first time he had done that, but he's done it several times. And he's also referred to her as the first lady. And what we don't see in that clip (laughs) is that he also wishes her a happy 30th birthday. Now, I would blow you kisses if you wished me a happy 30th birthday on my birthday, but Kamala Harris turned 58. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hang on, hang on. Listen to this comment about American infl- the American inflation rate, which is at 8.2%. Have a watch of this. But we have a lower inflation rate than most any nation in the, any other nation in the world. There you are. We've got a lower inflation rate than most any other nation in the world. Well, I suppose, Peggy, that's right if you exclude Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, France, India, Indonesia, Japan, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, South Africa, South Korea, Switzerland, I've run out of breath. Peggy, what do you do with this bloke? Well, he's claiming that we have the least worse inflation. Inflation, you know, above 2% or so is always bad. And I would say that he probably caused that global inflation. So it's like he tipped the first domino. He's watching it cause chaos and problems all over the world and sitting back and saying, well, ours isn't really that bad. Now, to your point, He's lying about that because there's a lot of places that have less inflation than we do. But even if that were true, he takes no responsibility for the fact that his bad policies here in America, in a lot of ways, have contributed to these problems that are cascading throughout the world. I know. I mean, you and I have talked before about the Biden administration raiding its emergency petroleum reserves. I mean, surely this is only because Biden stopped every initiative which under Trump made America energy independent. Well, we were energy independent under Trump. Not only that, but we were exporting oil all around the world. And under Biden, in a very short period of time, we have become energy dependent. And he's walking around the world, hat in hand, on his knees, begging people to produce more oil. It's ridiculous because he's begging for more oil from the Saudis. We actually have more oil here in America than Saudi Arabia. And yet he consistently goes and begs for them. I don't understand why it's better for the climate to pump oil around the world and then transport it here to the U.S. instead of just pumping and developing our own oil reserves right here in the United States. Absolutely. It's going to draw another 15 million barrels in December, all up 180 million barrels to, quote, arrest soaring oil prices. Peggy, what is that doing to oil production? I mean, basically, the oil releases are equivalent to Libya's daily oil production. Haven't they brought the strategic reserves to a 38-year low? And weren't those releases meant to lower America's energy bills, which they haven't? And surely if you start releasing petroleum from your reserves, what does that do to domestic production? Well, this is the worst possible policy. And looking at the timing of it, you have to believe that it's politically motivated. He's doing it intentionally just so that he can lower the prices a tiny bit before the midterms. But he's bragging about reducing the prices when he's only reducing them a little bit from the historic high prices that he has caused. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve is meant not to provide coverage for bad policies. It's meant to protect Americans in times of emergency. Joe Biden has created the emergency, which is causing him to release it. 
he doesn't need to do this, but he has, and he he alone can fix this problem. Mm. It's good to talk to you. It's unbelievable. I mean, I don't think the bloke knows what he's doing. I mean, the oil industry says it's Biden's releases which have been responsible for low production of oil because drawing down reserves artificially lowers the price in the short term and dissuades investment in new oil production. Peggy, that makes sense, except that Joe Biden doesn't. Great to talk to you, Peggy. Thank you for your insights. Always lovely to talk to you. See you next week. Thank you, Alan. There she is, Peggy Grandy and the Republicans on the move. Midterm elections, November 8. I know I talk about education quite a bit on this program, especially with Mark Latham. There are three reasons. Firstly, if I might say modestly, I think I know something about it. Secondly, I can't name one education minister in this country who demonstrates any understanding of the problems that are destroying our education system. And the third point is, not only are these children our future, but if they're brainwashed, in a few years' time they vote. Remember what I mentioned a couple of months ago, the outstanding governor in Florida, Ron DeSantis, who had visited one of his county schools and had some extraordinary things to say about modern education. First, he said that, quote, a 14-year-old cannot get a tattoo, but they're talking that they will do mastectomies and things which are very problematic and irreversible. He said these are kids going through a growing time in their life. He said there are a lot of different factors. Most of the dysphoria resolves itself by the time they become adults. So why would you disfigure a minor?" Unquote. And then this, in the classroom, we have battled a lot of ideologies. What I've said is the state of Florida is the place where woke goes to die. We are not going to let this state descend into some kind of woke dumpster fire. We are going to be following common sense. We're going to be following facts, unquote. Well, a dumpster, as you know, is movable waste. In my view, the movable waste in education are ministers who keep ignoring reality. Day after day, there are headlines, quote, students' maths problems at primary school multiply in high school, unquote. Another headline, school curriculum impossible to teach, argued stressed school principals who also argue that the curriculum can be nonsensical to students. The visiting OECD Education and Skills Director, Andreas Schleicher, warned Australia that it, quote, has made learning often a mile wide, but just an inch deep, unquote. We learnt only a little over a week ago that the number of permanent teacher vacancies in New South Wales had surged past 2,000 in July. The reality is the New South Wales Education Minister has no qualifications in education whatsoever. But in schools across Australia, Parents are not getting, by way of education, what they think they're getting. I mentioned at the end of last year, the first ever Australian Teacher Workforce Data Report by the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership, which showed nearly half the nation's maths and foreign language teachers are not qualified to teach the subject. Half of them. Your child may be sitting in a classroom and the maths teacher or the French teacher or the German teacher may be only a page ahead of them not qualified to teach the subject. A quarter of maths teachers surveyed said they had no training in maths. Between 36 and 46% of teachers were teaching subjects in which they had no special skill. And we're spending billions of dollars on all of this. There's a further issue here because this was a survey of nearly 18,000 teachers. One in seven planned to quit in the next 10 years 
Taxpayers' money has been used to train them. A quarter of all teachers plan to quit teaching before retirement age. Men who make up only 22% of the teaching workforce and young teachers are the likeliest to want to leave the profession. And here's the rub. Only 29% want higher pay. 61% blamed mental health issues or stress for wanting to quit. The problem which I've enunciated over and over again is discipline. The teacher has had all authority to discipline a child virtually taken away. The language and behaviour that many male and female teachers, especially female, have to endure is beyond disgraceful. Yet there's not a Minister of Education anywhere who does anything about it. First thing you do, by the way, is you call the police. No wonder teacher vacancies are surging. But what does the New South Wales Minister say, Sarah Mitchell? She knows nothing. Quote, the New South Wales public education system has a stable staff vacancy rate, which is very low for a system of our size. You see, there's no problem. Results, no problem. Teacher shortage, no problem. Discipline, no problem. But a headline today, quote, classroom crisis as teachers head for the exit. This is another survey by Monash University. Nearly 6,000 teachers and barely a quarter plan to stay on in the profession which the story says, quote, will exacerbate the already crippling shortage of teachers in Australian schools, unquote. Why? Violent students and entitled parents have made three quarters of teachers feel unsafe at work and many plan to quit. This is the education of the young people who are our future. You won't hear about this in any parliament, from any minister or any news bulletin today. The proportion of teachers planning to quit before retirement age has gone from 58% in 2019 to 72% this year. And here we come back to discipline. Without discipline and content, you can't have education. Three quarters of these teachers surveyed felt unsafe because of abusive and demanding students and parents. One teacher complained of hitting, punching, shouting, screaming and tantrums. One young lady I spoke to a couple of years ago had her first day in the classroom. She went in and it was bedlam. One big bloke was about to throw a briefcase at another. Gently, she asked them to quieten down and stop, to which in her first encounter ever in a classroom, she gained the reply, why don't you effing shut up? How do you expect her to put up with that? Of course, there's often a lack of discipline at home which leads to a lack of discipline in the classroom. And in a world where the entitlement mentality prevails, families and students become extremely entitled and disrespectful. Does today's survey offer a wake-up call? Teachers heading for the exit? I suspect not. It's been preceded by many other surveys highlighting the education crisis and nothing is done. Well, before we go, congratulations again to Senator Jacinta Price, a veritable breath of fresh air. In a social media post from last night, Senator Price supported Gina Reinhart's decision to pull her sponsorship of Netball Australia after many of our top netballers spat the dummy over Gina's stance on the climate scan and her father's views on Aboriginals. Jacinta said, you make your bed, you lie in it. Unless you've got a cool few million, in your back pocket to support your sporting code, your woke sense of self-importance should be your private opinion and your private opinion only. Jacinta said, sporting codes, corporates and society in general 
need to grow a spine and stop pandering to self-righteous individuals. She went on, wake up Australia, stop acting like brainless sheep and get on with the job, whatever job it may be. Stop empowering bullies and demonstrated what it means to be a real person. Clearly, self-flagellation isn't working, unquote. But Jacinda went on, she wasn't finished with. While you allow bullies to bully, it's the vulnerable who ultimately lose out in the end. She said, my niece is an up and coming Australian Aboriginal netball player. And now those she looks up to have made her future that much harder. All because you choose to judge another woman on the basis of what her father said years ago. Jacinda said, if we choose to judge others on the actions or words of their family members, we'd no doubt be peering down our noses with disgust at everyone we came across, if that's how judgmental we are to be. She said, it's time to grow up. She's magic, this woman, isn't she? Senator Jacinta Price, she went on. When you put the love of your country, yourself, or the thing you're passionate about before, your dislike, disdain, distaste, or hate for others, then that's when you achieve greatness for others. That's when you create opportunity and progress. Well, Senator Price, gold medal stuff. And 99% of Australians are cheering. Gina Reinhart is a top employer of Indigenous Australians. She has signed a multi-year, multi-million dollar funding arrangement with Medalla an Indigenous children's charity to provide Indigenous kids with scholarships to schools across the country. And she paid $540 million in tax in 2019-20, which is used in part to provide funds for Indigenous communities and programs. As Senator Price said, there are plenty of Aboriginal Australians who understand and appreciate the support Gina Reinhart and Hancock Prospecting have provided to improve the lives of so many." Unquote. Perhaps our netballers should do the right thing and apologise to Gina Reinhardt and chip in some of their generous salaries and join Gina's pro-Indigenous initiatives. But for now, Gina Reinhardt, 10 out of 10. Senator Jacinta Price, 100 out of 10. Netball, yet to score. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul's up next. He'll do a great job. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.